You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. If you've been with us the last few weeks, I've actually been asking you to open your Bible to the first page. Now we're close to the last page of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. And let me say at the outset this morning, this is not a message that you necessarily want to take notes on. How many of you are notorious note takers? You feel like you've been cheated if you miss a blank and you're going to flunk out of church because there will be an exam. Well, this is not a message that you necessarily want to get all the answers in the blanks. This is a message you want to lean into and let your heart hear from the Lord. How many of you over the last 24 hours have been a little spooked? Anybody been scared? Anybody get spooked? Well, this morning, I want to set your heart at ease. The Bible says, Jesus actually tells us, that there is nothing to fear but one thing. Every uh, so often, a survey will come out that lets us know what people fear the most. Do you know what the number one fear that people give in surveys? Do you know what it is? It's the fear of public speaking. Do you know what number two on the list is? It's death. That means that most people would rather die than do what I am doing right now, okay? Unless you think the preacher's job was easy. So uh, there's some fear that we have to overcome, but Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear, do not fear uh, those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather Jesus gives us one thing that you should fear. Here it is, rather Fear him. That's a command from Jesus. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in where? In hell. By the way, that is not a reference to Satan. Who is it that can destroy both soul and body in hell? That's not Satan. It's God. So there is a healthy fear that we should have of this place called hell. How many of you have ever seen this sculpture before? Have you ever seen that before? That is a sculpture. It's a very famous sculpture called The Thinker. Have you ever wondered what that guy was thinking about? I mean, is he contemplating a football game or, you know, stuff going on in his marriage or his finances? What's he thinking about? That sculpture was introduced to the world in 1904. The sculpture's name was Auguste Rodin. And he created that sculpture to represent a fictional character named Dante that was introduced to the world through a poem called Dante's Inferno. Do you know what the subject of that lengthy poem is? What's going on right now in hell? And so the thinker gives us the posture of every person who should contemplate his destiny, whether or not he will end up in heaven or in hell. And so as we go through this message this morning, rather than writing notes, that's the posture that we should take as we consider the certainty of judgment and the possibility of of hell. We're going to answer four questions here this morning. These are the questions. First of all, what happens after I die? Secondly, what is hell? Thirdly, why is there hell? And lastly, 
And maybe most importantly, who is going to hell? So let's deal with this first question by asking, what happens after I die? Now, before we dive into the scripture to get God's answer to that question, if you were to ask and survey people on the street, you might get a lot of different answers to this question. If you were to ask an atheist like Bill Maher or Gillette Penn or maybe some of the neo-atheists that are writing books, they would tell you basically there is no heaven, there is no hell, there are no roads that lead anywhere but the grave. And if you are a sincere person, you must be intellectually honest to understand that once you die, that's the end of the road. That's what an atheist would say in answer to that question. If you have a Catholic background, or if you were to ask some of your Catholic friends, what happens after I die? They might bring up the subject of purgatory. Unfortunately, the concept of purgatory is to be found nowhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, purgatory was an invention of Pope Gregory in the 6th century, almost 500 years after the Bible was completed. The Roman Catholic Church invented this idea of purgatory, kind of a timeout for disobedient children that weren't ready to go out and play with the big boys. They had to kind of pay a little penalty in the corner, and then maybe one day they would be able to graduate and, and, and get into the place called heaven. Conveniently, that was a great campaign tool for building the Catholic Church because um, incentives were given by people that had lost loved ones who feared that their loved ones would be in purgatory, and if you would pay up a little bit to the church, that would accelerate their process to get out of purgatory. That concept's not found anywhere in the Bible. Good building campaign, bad theology. If you were to ask um, a Seventh-day Adventist that question, what happens after I die, they might bring up the subject of soul sleep, the idea that when we die, our bodies and our souls go into the grave, and they lie there dormant until the final resurrection. Just kind of unconscious, checked out, no consciousness until the final resurrection. And that's a misinterpretation of some metaphors in Scripture. A lot of times in Scripture, the word sleep is used as a metaphor for those who have died. In the same way that we would use a metaphor, we don't like to talk about death, so we like to use replacement words like a person has passed away or upon their passing or they're asleep. But the Bible tells us, we'll see this in just a minute, that upon death, everyone immediately goes into one of two places. We'll see those two places in just a minute. If you were to ask someone that may have a very broad kind of religious spirituality, not based on the theology of Scripture, a pluralist would say, well, Islam and, and Buddhism and Christianity and um, all these different religions, even Eastern mysticism, they, they're just a lot of roads that all lead to the same place. And as long as you're sincere in your faith, it doesn't really matter what you believe, but that you're sincere that you believe, then eventually you'll make it to the place where God is. If you were to ask um, a lot of people, they would say, you know what, God eventually works it out for you. God's not a God of judgment and torment and hell. He really wants to live forever with you, and so eventually everybody's going to get on the right road to the right destination. That's called a term that we would use a universalist opinion. And interestingly, that shows up in media-type people, and it shows up in some very religious-type people. Very recently, 
Pope Francis was quoted as saying this, The Lord has redeemed all of us, emphasis, all of us, with the blood of Christ. All of us, three times he wants us to know, all of us are redeemed with the blood of Christ. Not just Catholics, everyone. And then he imagines somebody giving him some pushback on that. Father, the atheist. Yes, even the atheist. Everyone. We must meet one another doing good. And he imagines someone saying, but I don't believe, Father, I'm an atheist. But do good. We will meet one another there. Pope needs to read his Bible. Not everybody's going to be there. Rob Bell, Oprah Winfrey have a new friendship. And in Rob Bell's latest book called Love Wins, he suggests this. Given enough time, everyone will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart. Even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. That may be a good prayer to pray for everyone, but that's not the reality of what we find in the Bible. So let's open our Bibles and find out the answer to the question, what happens after I die? Let's begin reading here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And let me just say, first of all, here's what the Bible teaches. Everyone will face God in judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne. The Apostle John is writing this. It's a it's a, a vision, a revelation that God gave him of what one day would happen. These are things yet to come, but this is a prophecy of what one day will happen. And so John records what he saw. He saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Verse 12, and I saw the dead. What happens after I die? I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Everybody underline the word books. Is that singular or plural? That's plural. Underline the word books. And the books were open, and then another book was opened, which is called the book of life. Singular or plural? Singular. So we have two sets of books. You can just kind of imagine you're there in the throne room and you're overwhelmed by the one who is sitting on his throne. And then John saw that somewhere in this throne room there was a set of books. We don't know how many books. It may have been a library of books. But let what he saw be represented by this set of books. Are you wondering what's in the books? We're going to find out in just a minute. But then John also saw, apart from those books, another book. Separate from the books, and this particular book was called, what? The book of life. And so here we are seeing the judgment of God, and he is going to judge based on what is written in these two sets of books. It says here at the end of verse 12, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, singular or plural, plural, and so he's referring to this set of plural books. What's written in these books? He tells us. 
It says, according to what they had done. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to, again, what they had done. Modern attempts to try to erase the infinite justice of God and the coming judgment of God for every person is an attempt to make God a little more likable, a little more tolerant. And the idea is if somehow we could make God a little less judgmental and a little more tolerant, then maybe people would like him more. Maybe people would respond to him better if we just thought of God only and exclusively as a loving God. And what people who try to erase the judgment of God are doing, and what they don't understand is that you cannot fully appreciate the love and the mercy and the grace of God unless you understand that it is in contrast to his infinite judgment, his infinite justice, his infinite holiness. Without the holiness of God, the love of God has no meaning. Un unless you understand that God has rescued you by his grace from his judgment, you will not be overwhelmed with the amazing grace of God. So mark it down. You and you and you and me, all of us will face the certainty of the judgment of God. And some people will go to heaven. The scripture tells us that immediately upon dying, those who believe, those who have repented, those who have trusted Christ, those who have been redeemed by God, immediately upon their death will go into the place where God is. That's the simplest and probably the best definition of heaven. What is heaven? It's the place where God is. Heaven is the place where God is most fully known, without distraction, without temptation, without the limitations of our flesh. We will know God in this place called heaven in a way that we don't fully know him now. But one day all those who are redeemed will be in his presence. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 23, the apostle Paul is facing struggles and heartaches and doesn't want to be here anymore. Anybody can identify with that? It's like, man, I just wish I could go to heaven. That's what the Apostle Paul was facing in this verse. And he said, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. And so Paul understood that departing from here means that he would be with Christ there. And there's a sense in which only then and only there will we fully know the redemption that is ours in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 8, Paul again says, To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And so on the day that you die, the body stays here, but your soul goes on living in the presence of God if you are a believer. Isn't that great news? That death is not the end. On the day that you die, you get an upgrade. 
Some of you are waiting for the latest upgrade of your technology or your smartphone. And the greatest day of your life will be the day of your death because you get an upgrade of actually who you are if you are in Christ. We remember the conversation that Jesus had with the thief on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, that thief looked at him and said, Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, Today. You will be with me in paradise. Well, what happened on that day? They died, both of them. And on that day, that thief was with Christ after death because he had repented and believed. What great news for those of us that believed this world is not our home. We are living for a better place to be with Christ. Do you know what that means? That means for the believer, this world is the closest thing to hell you will ever experience. Did you have a bad week? Did it feel like you were going through hell? You weren't. But if you're a believer, that's the closest thing to hell you'll ever experience. But do you also know what that means for the unbeliever? For those of you that don't trust Christ, that don't believe, that don't surrender... That means that this world is the closest thing to heaven you will ever experience. Did you have a good week last week? I hope you enjoyed that. Because that's the closest thing that you will ever experience to heaven. Unless you believe. So some people will go to heaven, and here's what the Bible teaches. What happens after I die? Some will go to hell. Did you know that for every person who believes that upon death they're going to hell, 120 people believe they're going to heaven? Yeah, ask the average person, are you going to heaven or hell? What do they say? Well, I hope I'm going to heaven. I'm trusting that maybe somehow I might slip in the back door. Uh, My mom was a really good person. I'm just going to kind of shadow my way through the line and get into the place I want. I want to go to heaven, but do you know? Rarely do you meet a person that believes they're going to hell. Actually, I met one a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, we took our entire church staff for a a fun day in Chicago. We had some teaching time and some ministry time, and then we had some fun time, and then we found ourselves at the end of the day in downtown Chicago, and we went to a a local restaurant there called Pisano's. And as we were in a back room, getting our pizza ordered. We were having a great time. The owner of the restaurant came back in, and he engaged us in conversation, a really jovial Italian guy, and he was mixing it up with us, having a lot of fun. And in the conversation, he mentioned that he was a skydiver. He loved to jump out of airplanes. And he had done it over 4,000 times. And so as he was telling this story and joking with us and having a good time, I just looked at him and I said, Hey, have you ever had a buddy that jumped out of an airplane, pulled the chute, and the chute didn't open? And have you ever known someone that died in a skydiving accident? I have a great way of running a party, by the way, if you want to invite me over to your house. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I, I, I have. And I said, well, the next time you jump out of an airplane, let's just suppose that you pull the cord and the chute doesn't open. Where would you go? And he said, in a laughing, jovial voice, I'd go straight to hell. And he seemed like he was excited about it. And he didn't know that he was talking to people that had given their lives 
to actually rescuing people from hell. And I looked at him and I said, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. And he said, don't be sad. All my buddies are there too. And we're just going to have a blast. And we all just kind of groaned around the table. And I looked at him and I said, listen, I've found that a lot of people like to joke about this because it's such a serious subject. Do you know how to get to heaven? And you know what he did? He said, oh, yeah, Jesus died on a cross. And, and if you trust him, you'll get there. And I looked at him and I said, well, have you repented of sin? And have you placed your faith in Christ? And he said, I'm Catholic. <laughs> I, I have no idea why you're laughing right now. And when he realized that we weren't Catholic, and when he realized we weren't laughing, he found a quick way to exit the room. Hell is not a joking matter. It is something that you and I must contemplate. Are you absolutely 100% for sure that if you died in the very next breath, that you would escape the judgment of God in this place called hell. It's not a place to laugh at. Maybe you don't even really know what hell is, and that's why you're laughing. What is hell? The theologian Charles Hodge lived in the 19th century, and he said this, in considering this doctrine, it is a doctrine which the heart revolts from and struggles against. The doctrine of hell is a doctrine to which the heart submits only under the stress of authority. We want to laugh about it. We want to make jokes about it. We create holidays to make light of the judgment of God. And only under the weight of the authority of God's word and the conviction of God's spirit will our heart even be willing to grapple with the seriousness of hell. He says the church believes the doctrine of hell because it must believe it or renounce faith in the Bible and thereby give up all the hopes founded upon its promises. What is hell? We see it here in this verse. Look in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And so first of all, hell is the second death. Do you understand that we are all going to die at least once. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, It's appointed to man once to die. Some of you don't even want to consider that you are mortal. We create stories about immortality because we don't want to face the reality. There is a termination date. There is an expiration date on you. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment then it will be determined whether you die a second time. And hell is the second death. Hell is the eternal death for all those who refuse to repent and believe. So what dies the second time? Let me tell you what dies the second time. 
your opportunity dies. Your hope of heaven dies forever. The teaching of Scripture is simply this. If you are born once, you will die twice. But the good news of Scripture is this. If you are born twice, you will only die once. You are born naturally into this world as a little bitty baby, and then throughout the course of your lifetime, you have an opportunity to be born again spiritually. And if you are born again spiritually, you will only die once and not have to face the second death. Have you been born again? If you have not been born twice, you will die twice because hell is the second death. Hell is a place of fire. Again, look at it in verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so hell is a place of fire. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18 verse 9 said this, It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Some people like to think about Jesus as being this soft, compassionate, merciful, loving person, which he certainly was. But we forget that Jesus is the one in the scripture who talked about hell the most. And Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And he identified hell as a place of fire. Again, in Matthew chapter 13, showing that there will be a judgment. He said some will be thrown into the fiery furnace. You might ask the question, well, are the flames of hell that I see about in Scripture, are those literal flames? Well, we take the Bible seriously, and we take the Bible very literally, but we know that the flames of hell are different than the flames of fire that we experience here because we think of fire here as something that consumes. We think of fire here as something that gives light. But we read in Scripture that hell is a place where we will never be consumed. And so are the flames of hell literal? It's quite possible that the flames and the fire that we read about here is actually allegorical, symbolic for something that is infinitely worse than the fire that we think of here. But hell is a place of fire. Hell is a place of conscious torment. In Luke chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who died. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes as he was in torment, Luke 16, 23. He was actually aware of where he was and what was going on. And actually, at some sense, he had a knowledge of what was taking place in heaven. And he regretted decisions and choices that he had made in his life. And he thought about his family members that needed to be warned of what was happening here in hell. And so this man was conscious of what was going on. And he was in eternal torment. Hell is a place of weeping and pain. In Matthew chapter 13, again, Jesus speaking about a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be tears in hell. 
gnashing of teeth. What is that? That's gritting your teeth. You ever gone to the gym, seen people working out when they are in pain? What are they doing? Physical exertion results in gritting of teeth, gnashing of teeth. And that's what is going on with people in hell. Hell is a place of darkness. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 says, For them, speaking of false teachers, leading people into hell, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And so this is not a place where there's partying going on with disco lights. This is a place of isolation and darkness and doom. Hell is a place of destruction. Romans chapter 9, verse 22 talks about how God has endured with much patience these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It's a place where you will be destroyed over eternity. And then hell is a place that is eternal. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, again, Jesus speaking. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, those who are unredeemed, those who don't believe, he says, Depart from me. So what is hell? It is departure from God for eternity. Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What does the word eternal mean? Do you believe in eternal life? It means never ending. And so we rejoice in the fact that there is the hope of eternal, never-ending life with God. And Jesus actually speaks about that in the verse previous, about how those on his right will enter into an eternal life with God. And yet somehow, people want to change the word eternal in the next verse into thinking it is something less than never-ending. This is a theory called annihilationism, that somehow hell is a place that people go and they're just kind of wished out of existence. And yet Jesus talks about it being a place where there is eternal fire. Hell is eternal. And then finally, hell is more populated than heaven. Sadly. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Mark it down. Most people will live and die and go to hell. Only a few will surrender to the Lordship of Christ, embrace the forgiveness that is theirs, and make their way into heaven. Hell is a place that is more populated than heaven. Here's the third question. Why is there a hell? We see that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. It says this, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to, note this, what they had done. What was written in these books? What was in these books? Let me tell you what's in these books. 
at the judgment, everything that you have ever done, everything that you have ever said, everything you have ever thought, every motive of your heart has been recorded in the annals of these books. And these books will be open. Do you remember the worst 15 minutes of your life? Do you remember the wickedest thing you've ever done? The deceit and the selfishness and the violence and the hatred? The stuff that you would like to forget? That's been recorded and it will be opened. What you have done will be opened at the judgment seat of Christ. That's why there's a hell. You say, but I, I just really can't conceive of that. Listen, it's because our finite minds cannot conceive of the infinite holiness and justice of God. What we have done is summarized in a little three-letter word called sin. Have you heard of this concept? Whatever happened to sin? We want to think of sin as a mistake or a personality flaw or a weakness. Or I wouldn't be this way if I was born in a different place, had different parents. We like to excuse, justify, rationalize, and blame other people for our sin. But there will be no excuse. It's recorded. What is sin? Sin is an infinitely rebellious thing to God. And it deserves infinite judgment. You say, well, I can't conceive of that. It's because you don't understand the infinite holiness of God. Here's the way that we summarize that. Infinite love rejected demands infinite justice. The reality is this. There is consequence for what's written in these books. There will be a payday someday for the worst 15 minutes of your life. And you will not escape it. The reality is this. Sin burns. And you know that. Has someone else's sin ever burned you? And have you longed for the day that what they did to you will one day burn them the way it burned you? You see, that's a sense of justice. It's a finite sense of justice stamped in your soul that says, you know what? That person ought to pay for what they did. And yet, rarely do we turn the mirror on ourselves and realize what I have done to burn others and what I have done to burn God, I should pay. We don't think of those terms. But sin burns, and, and you know that. I, I, I could call on several of you right now. Would you just please stand and tell me how your sin has actually created negative consequences in your life? How many of you would be able to do that? I will not call on you, but how many of you say, you know what, I was an idiot in college. I was an idiot in my first marriage. I was an idiot when I was a teenager, and I did things that I am still paying the consequences for. What you're saying is you have scars from the burn of sin. You know that. Sin burns now. My son, Zach, when he was one years old, he was crawling across the living room floor. We had one of those steam vaporizers on the floor, and he was enamored by the steam coming out of this thing. Have you realized they don't make steam vaporizers anymore? Do you know why? 
Because one-year-old children have a tendency to crawl up on the steam vaporizer and put their hand and burn their hand. To, de- to this day, as an 18-year-old young man, my son has scars from crawling up and being burned. Some of you have scars like that. So do you know what hell is? Hell is the place where those who have refused to run to God for the healing that sin sin has burned them for, it's a place where God says, if you'll not come to me for healing, if you'll not come to me, then you will experience the full force of the burn of sin. Have at it. Because infinite love rejected demands infinite justice. Because what is written in these books is your sin. You say, I just, I don't know how to explain that. The only way I know how to explain it is this, okay? When about, I don't know, um, I, I remember Brooke, my oldest daughter, and Zach, my, my son, they're a year apart. I remember this day when uh, Brooke and Zach were four and three years old. Okay? We were traveling in life action, which meant we went to a different church basically every week. And one of my responsibilities is I was teaching these people in the church a parenting seminar, much like the one that we have coming up with Lane Johnson. I invite you to come to that. But uh, for six hours on a Saturday, we were going to teach parenting principles. Now, there is something in- intrinsically dangerous in doing that when you are the father of a four-year-old and a three-year-old. And they're actually in the vicinity where the people can actually observe the four-year-old and the three-year-old that is the offspring of this father. So here I am for six hours doing my best to teach parenting principles, how your children can obey everything you say every time you say it with a happy heart. How many of you would be interested in that seminar, right? <laughs> right. So there I am. I'm trying to teach them all these biblical principles. And the, uh, the perception is that I am a good, good father, right? And, and so I remember at the end of the day, a long day, we walked out into the church parking lot, finished with the day, and all the people exited the, the church, like, you know, 100 people out into the, the parking lot to get in their cars, only to find my four-year-old daughter and my three-year-old son in the gravel parking lot. The church had just been uh, laid down new aggregate in the parking lot, not just gravel, but these big stones, these big white chalky stones. Someone in the church had been kind enough to loan our family during that uh, week that we were there a car to drive. It was a brand new royal blue Buick. And we had been driving the car throughout the week, and, and I had warned my children, please don't throw up in the car Don't even breathe on the car, okay? We need to give the gracious, generous, loving person that's allowing us to use this car, their car, in good shape. So when we walked out of the seminar, all of the people are observing four-year-old Brooke, three-year-old Zach, picking up stones and launching them through the air only to watch the stones land on the hood of the brand-new blue Buick. And people realized, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about (laughs) as a parent. Do you know what Brooke and Zach were doing? They were completely invalidating the truth that I had just delivered. People were not going to believe me because of the actions of them. 
Do you know why there's a hell? Because our actions are causing people not to believe that he's a good, good father. So I walked up to my children, who are worthy of hell at this point, <laughs> and I've got options, right? I can look at them and say, you have no idea what you're doing. You're causing such incredible damage to this vehicle. This person has been so gracious to give it to you. You are abusing the grace and the love and the generosity of this person. And you are not only that, but you're invalidating everything that your father just taught to these people. People are not going to believe because of your actions. And I could have walked up to him and was like, that's at least $1,000 worth of damage. Pay up. They have no ability to pay, do they? They have no resources from which to repair the damage that they've caused by their behavior. So I've got one of two options. Now, if I exercise religion upon them, this is what I could do. You're going to work it off. I know you have no ability to pay. You're getting jobs, and the first $1,000 that you make is going to repair the damage. That's religion. And that's what most people think they have to do to escape hell. They have to pay off what's written in the books. They need some other books of the good stuff that's been written. And somehow if we can have the books of the good stuff outweigh the books of the bad stuff, then somehow God's going to get us... That, that's not it because it doesn't erase what's in the books. That's religion. But here's what a good, good father does. He looks at them and says, your sin has incredible consequences. You have caused irreparable damage from which you can never recover. But out of my own resources, I am going to pay the debt that you owe. Not because you are good, but because your father's good. That is the offer of infinite love and grace that God gives to those who have sinned against him in ways unimaginable to us. We are like three-year-old kids and every time we sin, every bad attitude, every lustful thought, every deceitful thing that we do to cover our sin is an incalculable, rebellious act against the holiness of God. That's why there's a hell. For people that reject the offer and turn to religion to try to pay their debt. Do you understand? Everyone who goes to hell chooses it. We have this idea in our head that people in hell are down there just remorseful and regretful. And they're thinking about the times they were in a church service like this. And they should have come forward. They should have given their lives to Christ. And, and they're regretful. Do you know that that scene is nowhere in Scripture? Nowhere in Scripture do we see that anybody in hell is repentant. People in hell are rebellious to the end. And people in hell are people that have said to God and continue to say to God, leave me alone. And that's exactly what God does with them in hell. He leaves them alone. There are people who want to maintain their sovereignty, people that don't want to bow, people that they want to act like God and expect everybody else to worship them and bow to their ideas. 
people in hell have chosen it. C.S. Lewis has said it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those to whom, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Because we want our own will rather than God's will. And so if your will is to live as sovereign, if your will is to play God, if your will is to do your own thing, if your will is to enjoy the pleasures of sin now and not repent, not turn, then God says, sin will burn and it will burn you forever. Here's the last question. Who is going to hell? Probably the most important question. Who's going to hell? If you're a smart person at this point, you're asking the question, am I going to hell? And if so, how can we change that destination? Look back at the scripture. It says here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The simple answer to the question, who's going to hell? It's simply this, everyone whose name is not found in the book of life. So what is this book? And what's written in it? And how can I know if my name is in there? You can know. You don't have to hope. You don't have to wonder. You can know if your name is in here. How can I know? It's simply this. You can know your name is in here if you have repented of sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who will not repent is going to hell. I want you to see this verse in Revelation chapter 3, just a few chapters uh, Prior to chapter 20, it says, remember then, Jesus is speaking, remember then that what you received and heard, keep it and repent. You've heard the truth this morning. You've heard the truth before. This is probably not the first time that you've heard about heaven and hell and the offer of salvation through the grace of Jesus Christ. But have you kept it? And have you repented in response to what you've heard? The one who conquers will be clothed thus with white garments. What, what in the world? It's like, it's like, I don't even own anything white. And if I did, I wouldn't wear it because we're past Labor Day now. And it's like, what, 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 what is, what's the white garment? Do you understand that your garments, what you have done, has caused you to be stained with sin. And the picture here is that of a wedding. In ancient times, the father of the groom would hand out white wedding garments to everyone who attended the wedding. And the symbolism here is the wedding that one day will take place, the coronation, the ceremony of Jesus as the bridegroom who will enter into permanent presence and covenant relationship at the wedding feast of all those who are, who, who, whose names are written in the book of life. And our garments have to be changed. We have to exchange that which has been stained by sin for that which only God gives, white garments. And he said, those 
coverings, those white garments that have covered your sin is what's required for you to be in the presence of God without being incinerated. He says, if that is true, if you have repented and the stain of your sin has been covered by the white, clean garments, he says, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. And because your name's in there, Jesus says, in the judgment, in the courtroom of God, before the throne, notice what he says, I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels in the courtroom of God. Your only hope of heaven is that you will be judged not by what's written in the books, but that your name is found in the book of life. How can I know my name's in there? Have you repented of sin? Do you understand The scripture says that the Lord is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all would come to, here's the word, repentance. It's the only way you can know that your name is in the book. Is your name in the book? Do you have absolute confidence if you died in the next second, you would be with Jesus Christ in heaven? Do you know it? You say, well, now that I've heard this message, I think I'll be there. No, no, it's not hearing the message. It's what you do in response to what you've heard. Have you kept it? Have you repented? What does it mean to repent? It means to turn. The direction of your life has changed. Has there ever been a moment in response to the holiness of God, in response to the certainty of judgment, that you have cast your hope of heaven not on religion, not on your family, not on your money, not on your good performance, not on your good behavior, but you've cast your hope of heaven upon what Christ has done for you. What has Christ done for you? Listen, do you know what was happening on the cross? Jesus went through hell on the cross so you wouldn't have to. That's the hope that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so the wrath of God would be diverted from you and you could have the white garments of forgiveness and grace and love even though you deserve the infinite justice of God. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Listen, I want to give you a chance to respond to this message. It's been a heavy message. For the next few minutes, I do not want you thinking about leaving right now. Set your heart on the Lord. Is your name going to be found in the book of life? How can I know? Have you repented of sin? You have an absolute confidence that you have been forgiven from what was written in the books say Trent how do I know that well if you don't know that for certain if you don't have 100% confidence we want to give you an opportunity to walk out of here with that confidence and so in just a moment I'm going to pray and then we're all going to stand and Micah's going to lead us in a song but for you that's not a time for you to sing That is a time for you to stand to your feet, march to the nearest aisle, and come forward to one of our counselors down here. Our pastors and elders and friends are down here to help you know with certainty.
that you are on your way to heaven. Not because you're afraid of the flames of hell, but because you have such a love for the good, good Father that He would provide a way of escape for you. So don't turn and walk out of here. Don't say, well, I'll do it at home or I'll do it in the privacy of my heart. Chances are you'll be right back here this next week and you'll be doubting it again. Be bold about the certainty of your judgment. Step out with a physical demonstration of your surrender of your life to Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus for healing and forgiveness for the scars and the burns of sin. I'm going to pray right now and I'm just going to pray for you. Before I do, with heads bowed and eyes closed, how many of you, nobody's looking around, how many of you would say, Trent, I do not know for certain that if I died this very moment, I would have a home in heaven. Would you raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. I won't call you out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Are there others? Thank you. I don't know, Trent. I want you to pray for me right now that I'd have the courage. Thank you. To leave my seat. Thank you. Come forward. Okay. In about 30 seconds, those of you that raised your hands, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And I'm going to pray that you'll have confidence and courage to step out of your seat, come down here. We're just going to take just a few minutes. We're going to take you to a quiet place. One of our counselors is going to sit down with you for about five minutes. We've got a new believer's kit we'd love to give to you, answer your questions, and show you from Scripture how you can be saved this morning from hell. Father, I want to pray for my friends here this morning. God, I pray that you would overcome their anxieties and their fears. God, I pray that the intensity of your conviction would be so strong they couldn't remain in their seat. God, would you give them the boldness to step out, to trust you, and even overcome the fear of talking to another believer and surrendering their lives to Christ. God, would you break the strongholds of sin in their life? I pray that they would even feel the burn that their sin's causing in their life right now. God, reveal yourself as a good, good, loving, gracious, merciful, compassionate Father that wants to give them eternal life this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand us to do that. Let me say this. For those of you that are Christians, do you know the name Penn Gillette? You know the comedy team, Penn and Teller? You ever heard of them? Penn Gillette is an atheist. Very outspoken, unapologetic, very bold atheist. I was watching a YouTube video this week. This is what Penn Gillette said about us. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Now, the word proselytize, we would use the word evangelize. People that don't share the gospel with people they think need to come to Christ. I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it a little socially awkward, he said, how much do you have to hate somebody not to evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? 
I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, there is a point at which I tackle you. And this is more important than that. It's time to be bold. There is a world on its way to hell. And we have the life-saving message of the gospel. It's time to get it out. So this afternoon, from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock, we call it a fall festival. It's a trick. It's to get our unbelieving friends there, give them a little candy, and give them the gospel. Who's going to do that? You're going to do that. All the stuff we've talked about, sharing Jesus without fear, your testimony, all the Bible knowledge, it is time to open your mouth and to engage people in a conversation around eternity. Where are you going if your parachute doesn't open? Can I share with you how I know I'm going to heaven? His name is Jesus. He died on that cross. He took my place. He experienced hell for me so I wouldn't have to. Has that ever impacted your life? Open your Bible and share with Him. That is what we are doing from 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock at Four Winds Field. And so I invite you to come and be bold about your faith. We'll see you next week. You're loved.